not driving around in an automobile that says, honk, I'm a racist. My laptop, when I pop it up and doesn't have a sticker on it that says, I am homophobic. Like, you know, there are these images that we have that determine whether or not someone is or is not something. But the reality is, even me, as someone who is a social injustice champion, I have to check myself for implicit bias. Helping nonprofit marketers, fundraisers, and leaders like you grow their revenue and impact so they can do more good in the world. This is the Build Good Podcast. Now here's your host, Mike Dirksen. Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Build Good Podcast. This is the show for people like you who work hard to build a better world for all of us. Now, let me ask you this. Does your organization have a plan for how to increase equity and inclusion in your nonprofit? If you're grappling with this right now, you're, you're not alone. Many leaders and fundraisers want to meet this moment in time. In fact, most people I talk to, they want to not only make their own organizations more equitable, but they want the nonprofit sector as a whole to lead on this. And many are looking for answers on, on what they can do right where they are today to start changing and implementing systems and policies and processes that create a more just workplace for all. So to find out about different ways all of us can increase equity and diversity right in our own existing structure, today on the show, we talked with Tysley Williams. Tysley is the Chief Development Officer at America's Promise, the largest alliance of its kind in the U.S. devoted to helping create the conditions for success for all young people, including the millions currently being left behind. Over the last 23 years, Tysley has held senior leadership positions with the YWCA USA, the American Red Cross, and the YMCA. And she was also the executive director of a nonprofit organization founded by a Fortune 500 company. And over her career, Tysley has inspired individuals and institutions to invest more than $92 million in charitable causes. On today's podcast, Tysley talks about how our beliefs about race, equity, and inclusion must influence our behavior. And she shares some practical tips on how any nonprofit can put the principles of equity and inclusion into practice. So here's my conversation, Tysley Williams. Tysley, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I know our listeners will enjoy this chat with you immensely. And I also know there's a lot on your on your plate these days. So thank you for making the time to be here. Mike, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really excited to connect with you and have the opportunity to share more insights with your listeners. So thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about how leaders and fundraisers and marketers can increase equity and inclusion and representation right where they are in their own fundraising shops. But before I go any further, you are the only person I know whose Twitter handle is their first name only. There's Jack from Twitter and then there's Tysley. Those are the two first name only people in my Twitter feed. So I have to ask, were you an early adopter of Twitter and you snagged that username before anyone else could? Oh, Mike, I'm laughing. I think my parents would be delighted to hear this question. 
So I wasn't an extremely early adopter. I want to say maybe I snagged my Twitter handle probably around 2009. But Mike, the reason I was fortunate to have my first name is because I have a very unique first name. Right. Um, I was born in the States in 1975, and I was named after um, a famed actress. She is a beloved African-American uh, philanthropist, model, and her name is Cicely Tyson. And my parents always said that if they had a daughter, they would name her Tysely in honor of Cicely Tyson. And so with a unique name, Mike, I've been Tysely my whole life. I've never had a last name, you know, whether it's grade school, whether it was college. Right. Rarely did I get the question, Tysely who? I mean, there's usually only one in a crowd and for a while, only one on Twitter. Gotcha. <laughs> well, I, I got to ask, if your mom was, was a fan of Cicely Tyson, did you ever get to meet her? Sue, I've um, met her through what I would consider to be a very brief exchange. So I first had the opportunity to just stand in a line with a lot of people after an Alvin Ailey uh, dance performance. And I most recently saw her in Atlanta, Georgia for a women's conference called Power Rising. And it was essentially a gathering celebrating the achievements and the accomplishments of African-American women. And I mm -hmm. didn't have the opportunity to say or do much, but I did have an opportunity to see her there. So I don't know her well. Like many, I celebrate her accomplishments and achievements from afar, but she is top of mind in the morning. And I literally carry her and her legacy with me everywhere I go. That's a fantastic story. You are the Chief Development Officer of America's Promise, which is the largest alliance of youth-serving organizations in the United States. And I love, love your organization's guiding belief that every young person deserves to succeed and every adult is responsible for making that happen. It's about shared responsibility. It's about us adults doing what we can to help our young ones build a more hopeful future so that they and in turn can help the next generation build a more hopeful future. And I know you've been a talented fundraiser for, for decades, including with the YMCA and the American Red Cross. You describe yourself as a daughter of the Deep South. Uh, you were born in Birmingham, Alabama. How did you get into this career? So, Mike, thank you for the kind words. Um, I, too, love the guiding principles of America's Promise Alliance And it is all about inclusiveness, which we are going to have an opportunity to talk more about as we discuss ways to center and increase equity within organizations. I um, really think, Mike, that I came into this work as a result of Two parents who were very intentional about creating teachable moments for me and my siblings. 
Mm. My parents were both educators and everything seemed to be structured and coordinated in a way that we could learn. And we were actually exposed to very complex things as little people. And it wasn't until I began to age a bit that I realized that a lot of what is complex about the world, my parents introduced to us in very simple ways as little people. And so I have learned Mike, to value human beings, largely because it was um, an imperative and an extremely important principle at home. And as I go about inspiring individuals and institutions to make financial investments in young people, I am often reminded, Mike, that every adult has been a young person. Yeah. But I cannot say beyond a shadow of a doubt that every young person will become an adult. And I feel as if we all have the shared responsibility to do the very best that we can to ensure that we eliminate and erase any threat that may come or any obstacle that may be in the way of the promise and the potential of young people. Just so so our listeners know, you and I are right now in a class uh, at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, where we are studying philanthropic psychology, how and why people invest in social good, what drives their behavior, and really how we can improve the well-being of donors by giving them a sense of efficacy and autonomy and connectedness. And in that class, you spoke of a term that I believe you coined, but you correct me if I'm wrong, which is noble benefit. Can you explain what noble benefit means? Yes, Mike. Um, I'm enjoying learning from you and Dr. Jin Shang, as well as our other colleagues. What really led me to this particular course? Mike, I found myself in the social goods sector and having worked in human services, I was really struggling with what has been our traditional approach to crafting call to actions, we have traditionally cast individuals who are in need of services as the individual who is in a position that is less than. Right. We often consider those individuals to be disadvantaged. We consider them to be at risk. You know, we use language and nomenclature that really paints those individuals as being in need of something that the rest of us are not in need of. And I really began looking at what philanthropy is, and I felt as if, Mike, all of us are in need of something. Mm -hmm. The individual that I'm seeking to raise dollars for may have a varying financial need than I have, but I believe that we have the same need 
to feel elements of satisfaction, to sense and to experience self-worth and happiness and fulfillment. Right. And I believe, Mike, that in order for me as a donor to feel good about myself and in order for the individual that I'm seeking to also serve or to provide what I have called a noble benefit for, that we must first see ourselves as equals. And so I feel as if that I needed to adopt new language and a new word that introduced new meaning. And so, Mike, a noble benefit is an advantage for self and someone else. It rests in the belief that all individuals, every human being, we all have needs. And in order for our needs to be met, we must actually find ourselves squarely positioned in interdependent relationships with others. Yes. And those individuals, Mike, are not less than or greater than we are. When the measure is merely financial and we're looking at currency as the only value, as the only measure, it is really simple and really easy to find ourselves saying, well, We've got a major donor and we've got a minor donor. Right. But do we really have a major or a minor donor? Might absolutely not. Both individuals are making meaningful contributions. So I am just encouraging people to reshape the way we value things, in particularly in the social good space. We must place value on things that extend and reach beyond currency. And so, Mike, I'm hoping by speaking about noble benefit, asking people their thoughts and perspective on noble benefit, that I will begin to develop a greater and a deeper understanding of what a noble benefit is and how through the activation of a noble benefit, we can truly sustain generosity, kindness, and compassion. I love the term, and I hope that it becomes part of the vernacular in our sector, and it becomes part of a mindset shift in the way we go about giving. And I love the way that you put it, is that both of us, the giver and the person who's benefiting from that gift, we both become more whole as a result of the relationship. So would love to have you back on the show sometime and dedicate more time uh, to talking about noble benefit. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we can increase equity and representation in the sector. And I know that you, Tysley, you've spent a large part of your career working in this field. You were the chair of the AFP Women's Impact Initiative. You gave a rousing speech during ICON two years ago, I think it was, where you called for, for all of us, like social impact leaders and fundraisers and marketers, to not only be champions about this, but to actually lead the way for the rest of the world to create more equity in fundraising and in other areas. And so you, you've always been so prescient about this. 
And of course, now in this moment in time, we're, we're all having these kinds of conversations that you've been telling us to have for years already. So I wanted to get your thoughts and your insight on this. Before I do that, I, I just want to ask you and our listeners for, for a little bit of grace at the front end. Piously, you and I, we didn't rehearse this conversation ahead of time. We don't have a clear outline of where we're going. This is a bit of an off-the-cuff conversation where, where I'll just ask you some honest questions that I have. And we might meander around a little bit here and there. So I want to thank you ahead of time for your patience. But let me start here with the very, very basics. When we talk about equity and increasing equity, what do we mean, practically speaking? So, Mike, I want to thank you once again for this invitation and thank you for modeling the activation of courage. I think it is so critically important as we talk about equity and all that is connected to us for all of us to know and to recognize there are not right answers. There are opinions, there are perspectives, there are best and promising practices. But Mike, we are all learning as we go. So through the lens of learning, what I mean, Mike, when I use the word equity is how do we stand up through word and deed Exchanges that are fair and impartial. And fairness, Mike, is a word that many of us would qualify as being a good thing. If we can achieve a culture, a community, an organization that's fair, we would consider and qualify that as a good action. Right. The challenge has historically been, Mike, as it pertains to equity, is that human beings build systems, human beings build policies, practices, procedures, and human beings through our lived experiences, we have bias, all of us. I have bias. We all have bias. What we're attempting to do by centering equity is to acknowledge that we all have been conditioned, which means, Mike, there have been deposits made into our minds that influence the way that we think, that fertilize our beliefs, that have a direct tie and a direct connection to the way that we behave. And sometimes, Mike, we have overt awareness to those things. And sometimes that which has influenced us has been so ingrained and done so in a way that we don't even have awareness of it. It is not explicit. It can be implicit. And so, Mike, I think that when we talk about equity, in particular in a space where we are working to create a world in which people can feel as if things are fair and impartial, that we're going about constructing that in a fair and impartial way. 
So that's what we mean, Mike, or that's what I mean when I speak to equity. I think personally, that's a great differentiation. Personally, I feel like sometimes when you talk with people, they talk about explicit bias. Yeah. And they say, well, it's not evident here. It's not evident there. But what you're saying is that, well, there might be no explicit bias, but there very likely is some sort of implicit bias. And so if you want to pursue equity, you actually have to pursue finding where the implicit bias lies. Is it, do I have you right? Yes, that's exactly right. And I think, Mike, what we all have to do is if we have awareness of something and we recognize that we ourselves have limitations, and that's sometimes hard for us, right? To step into space when we are high-performing and overachievers and when we are doing things that are great and wonderful, it's really hard to look at ourselves as people that may have limitations. Right. I think the best way to ensure that you are being fair and impartial is to ask, is to create space an opportunity for people to give feedback. Mm -hmm. Because to your point, we're usually looking at an explicit expression. You're like, I'm not driving around in an automobile that says, honk, I'm a racist. <laughs> right. right. My laptop, when I pop it up and doesn't have a sticker on it that says, I am homophobic. Like, you know, th there are these images that we have that determine whether or not someone is or is not something. But the reality is, even me, as someone who is a social injustice champion, I have to check myself for implicit bias that I may not even see, and I have to ask people, and I turn to people to say, does this seem fair and impartial to you? Does this policy seem fair and impartial? Is my expectation around this fair and impartial? And what I've learned sometimes, Mike, is I get it wrong, right? Mm. I have to be open to making course corrections and making adjustments. So I was going to give you an example. Are you, are you cool with that? Oh yeah, for sure. So Mike, I, I mentioned that I'm from the deep South and in the deep South, we use words that we would consider to be terms of endearment. Okay. Um, it's a manner in which we speak that, sends a signal to the person you're speaking to that you have familiarity, that you have instant connectivity, gotcha. and that you feel warmly towards someone. So I'll give you an example. Sweetie is a word that is a term of endearment in the South. And you can walk into any professional setting today in 2020 and hear men, women, and those who don't identify using the word sweetie. 
You can see, Mike, before I even raise the flag, that there may be people working in environments that don't feel as if the term sweetie is an appropriate term for a workplace. Sure. Right? And you have to recondition yourself because you're so accustomed to, A, seeing sweetie as a good thing and using sweetie to create an affinity and a connectivity. But you can see how someone either someone who grew up in the South or someone who doesn't have a full understanding of the word can view it as something that is misplaced and inappropriate. Right. And you have to create space and opportunity for people to bring forth their opinions and for you to then work to create norms and practices where everybody can feel as if the workplace is one that is fair and impartial, and it isn't just comfortable for some, but it's comfortable for all. Right. There's a lot of talk in media, in culture, about systemic racism and sexism and embedded systems of inequality. And there's a lot of very important voices rallying around the idea of creating systemic change. And my sense is that for the most part, I think our sector wants to lead in that change. And for the most part, I think nonprofit CEOs and leaders and fundraisers, they, they really want to meet this moment in time and they want to do something. When they hear systemic change, they think it's mostly about legislation. That's how you change a system. They're not thinking of, like you just mentioned, of using the word sweetie. They're thinking that this is high-level legislation stuff, that there's something fundamentally wrong in the overall system, um, which we know there is. But some organizations are not in a position to advocate for change at that level. It's, it's not part of their mission. It's not their wheelhouse. Um, others are, but many aren't. But they want to know what they can do right where they are to help increase equity. How do you see that? So, Mike, let's go back to shared nomenclature. Let's talk about what a system is. So we've talked about a definition of equity. I see, Mike, a system as a set of things working together as part of an interconnected network. So if a system is an interconnected network, we all work in systems and we all have subsystems supporting our work. Right. So let's use Sweetie as an example. In a culture where Sweetie doesn't go unchecked, Other people start to see that, hey, the boss goes around and says, good morning, sweetie. How are you doing? Good job on that presentation, sweetie. Do you know what other people are going to start to do? They're going to start using the word sweetie because it is viewed as an acceptable behavior. It's viewed as a practice That is completely acceptable. And so instead of having one isolated incident with a user using the term, when it goes unchecked, you have other people 
adopting, modeling, replicating language that people may view as offensive. And that offense may actually create difficult work environments for people. The reason why I care about whether or not sweetie is a good word or a bad word isn't just because of the principle, but Mike, when we step into a workplace, we have shared commitments to a goal, right? Whether that is a financial goal, whether it's service-oriented, and if someone hearing the word sweetie prevents them from their individual contribution to the greater good, we are not creating a high-performing team. So Mike, what enables us to say, flag on the field, sweetie is inappropriate, is the adoption of policies and procedures. That is what enables systems and practices to function and to fuel. And so let's take what a lot of frontline fundraisers know as a gift acceptance policy. We know that a gift acceptance policy helps us to determine what is and is not deemed appropriate as it pertains to what we can say yes to, right? It is a written document that has been adopted by our leadership at the board table. It has been embraced by heads of departments It has been introduced, we orient ourselves to it, and we know how to step out into the field and act in accordance to that policy. And Mike, no matter what system we are all a part of, whether it's in our day-to-day life as a professional, whether it's when we get home to our Um, places of rest, whether it's during off hours with our places of worship, we are all using and relying on systems. And so, Mike, I think the first step is to recognize that systemic change is not synonymous with legislative advocacy. Legislative advocacy is one way in which we can bring about systemic change. There are other ways that we can also bring about positive systemic changes. And we do that, Mike, by first looking at the current state, assessing through the lens of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, whether or not our policies and procedures are fair and impartial. 
Hey, I'll be right back with my conversation with Ticey Williams, but I wanted to let you know that if you feel like your donor communications are not working as well as you think they should, if you wish your direct mail and emails got a better response, or if you just need some guidance in how to write your next appeal or your next website, we've created a free resource for you called the 5-Minute Fundraising Fix. You can find it at 5minutefundraisingfix.com. That's the number 5, minutefundraisingfix.com. It's three short videos that will help you create a clear and compelling message that moves donors to action. And it will help you avoid common fundraising mistakes that cost you time and money. It's short, practical advice that has the power to make a huge difference in your fundraising. And it's completely free. It costs you nothing. Just go to 5minutefundraisingfix.com where you can sign up and watch the first video today. Now back to my chat with Tysley Williams. So we can create systemic change, not at the legislative level, but right where we are, right within our own organizations. No matter how small or how big our nonprofits are, there are things we can do because we create systems in our own structures. We create policies. We create procedures for different things. So let's narrow down and let's say that there's a CEO of a mid-sized organization and uh, maybe he or she, they haven't meaningfully had a conversation with their staff or board about this. And it's not that they don't care. They've just been listening and they've been thinking about what makes sense, where they can be more effective. And some might say, that the fact that they haven't had the conversation speaks volumes, but let's say that that they have good intentions and, and they want to do something and they want to start today. Now, where is a good place to start? Should they start uh, looking at the board level? Should they start in their C-suite? Should they start by having a town hall with all staff? Where do you think is a good practical way to start? My, my recommendation is to glean insights from what we know has worked for other organizations and workplaces. And so, Mike, we don't have time to go through all of these, but I'm going to share what I think is an excellent place to start. And Mike, it's going to be rooted in some evidence. So there's a little bit of data-driven recommendations. And then I'll share with you the link so that people can learn more. So Fortune Magazine, they have this 100 best workplaces for diversity. And so there's a criteria by which they come in, they look at how policies and procedures are in place and the practices, right, stemming from that to discern whether or not a workplace values diversity. And Mike, what they did was they identified 10 statements and or actions that showed up within these 100 best workplaces for diversity. So I'm going to talk really quickly about three of them. I think the first place to start Let's start with one step and then, Mike, let's give people three ways in which they can take this step and move it forward. So I think 
the first step is adopting a shared commitment to diversity. And I believe it is critically important to put pen to paper so that you can create shared understanding within your internal community and your external community. So the first step, Mike, is to actually make a written commitment to diversity. And here is what the Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Places for Diversity list. Here are three things that you should take into account when trying to put pen to paper. The first, Mike, is that the diversity statement should be between 20 to 75 words. So you want it to be succinct. You want a clear statement of the organization's main position as it pertains to diversity. The next thing, Mike, is that you want to make sure once you compile the language that you can create comprehension. So the readability, Mike, needs to be at the eighth grade level or lower. So does that translate for my Canadian neighbors, eighth grade level or lower? You know, I come out of the direct response fundraising field. And so we're always aiming between fourth and eighth grade. And in fact, we always say the more sophisticated the person that you're talking to, the more educated, the busier they are, and the more their brain just craves clarity. Yes, absolutely. So once we commit to concise words, and then we ensure comprehension, the third piece that I'll leave you with, Mike, is to infuse positive words like commitment, freedom, inclusion, growth. And the reason why those words are deemed positive, useful, and helpful is because, Mike, they inspire and they enable you to build. And so the point of the words, right, isn't just pen to paper. It's pen to paper with the principles and then the principles driving the action, right? And so if we were to start, the first thing we want to do is to create a written commitment statement. But we want to set that statement up to drive action. Yeah. And I love the way that you're building this because using positive words like commitment and freedom and growth, what we're doing is we're building an aspirational identity for our organization. We're saying where we are today is good. It's not great. Here's where we want to go. This is the new future that we want to build together. It's positive. It's hopeful. It's inspiring. We need you on board to get there. Yes. 
And I, Mike, am ready to step forward and join you in creating this equitable organization. I think, Mike, you've done a wonderful job simply demonstrating how we can bring about systemic change and how we can excite people to partner with us. Right. So let's say we do this process. We've got this in place. Uh, We've got to live it out. This has to become a living document. And um, part of that now has to include building a more equitable team. I think there's no excuse to say we want to hire a more diverse team, but we just can't find a talent because talent is evenly distributed among humanity. Right. So let's work from the assumption that there is the talent out there. There is diverse talent out there. Maybe we can say, well, it's harder to find people with credentials. You know, if you want a CFRE or an MBA, uh, I can I get that. But let's not let get credentials in the way of someone who can do the work, who's a great team leader, team builder, a good collaborator. How do we change the structure now to actually open the doors to people who can help us live this out and help us become a more diverse team, who have the talent, who have the skills? Mike, we do that with an understanding that we ourselves may need to make personal adjustments in order to usher in the institutional change we are seeking and hoping to find. And so I, Mike, am a process-oriented leader. I am a strategic leader. If it were up to me, Mike, I would hire every person on my team to think strategically, to be process-oriented, because it would be so much easier for me to lead the team. It would be so much easier for me to step into work every day. But guess what, Mike? I recognize that as challenging as it is for me to ideate, that I need ideas people. And ideas people work very differently than people like me who are process-oriented. Right. But in order for me to have something to be strategic around, I need an ideas person who isn't going to want to come in at nine o'clock, who's going to want to work to 11, who isn't going to understand the significance of the flow chart. But I have to see the value of the ideas person. And I have to recognize that as the leader, I have probably created a culture that makes me comfortable. Right? Hmm. And it's going to be hard for an ideas person to function in a culture that I've created where the standard is based upon my preferences as a strategic thinker. And so that translates, Mike, as far as racial and cultural diversity, as far as age is concerned that we all have different preferences. And we have to recognize that if we are really going to create diverse environments, which by definition, that means people are different, 
then we have to recognize that our culture and the systems and the policies and the procedures have to be flexible enough to support the variance and the difference that enables all people to function and to flourish. Right. And so let's make this a little bit more tactical as it pertains to race and credentials. I think within communities, we all value different things. There may be a number of reasons why someone has not completed their formal education, has not set for an exam to obtain a credential, and it may not be because they don't have the knowledge, because they are not committed, because they aren't smart. It could be a variety of reasons. In the event you value that as the employer or as the institution, it is first imperative that you invest in the pathway for people to obtain and pursue those. Right. That the responsibility and the onus is not on the individual, but you say, when you join our organization, we value continued education. And so every individual gets $1,500 a year to invest in their education. We value credentials. In the event you'd like to pursue that, we have dollars allocated so that you will be able to meet that which we deem appropriate. And so I think the other element, Mike, that we have to introduce is shared responsibility. We talked a lot about shared principles, and we talked about the need to activate things. But in order for us to ensure that we have shared commitment, shared actualization, we must have shared responsibility and be willing to resource that which we deem important. So that gets into development, professional development a little bit. I could be wrong, but I think at the junior level or at the coordinator level or the associate level, there isn't as much of an equity problem, if you will, as you start to have in middle management or as you start to have in, in the C-suite, where all of a sudden those people aren't making it up the ranks. And um, sometimes that is because of credentials, but sometimes it's also just because they had more internal advocates or they knew knew the right people or their family knew the right people, whatever it is. Are you saying that when we hire people as a coordinator or associate, we should say, here is the track for you in this organization. This is where you can get to. And I want you to know that this is a real possibility that you can get here. This is what it will take. It will take taking this course or it will take getting these credentials. It'll take this kind of commitment. But here's the track for you. We're going to do our best to resource you in that. And as long as you want to grow, this is a commitment that we're making to every single employee. Is that what you're talking about? Mike, that sounds like you are on the right track to usher in equity. What you've described is fair. 
It's impartial. It doesn't expect an individual to conform based upon their perspective of what is adequate or inadequate. It begins by introducing the standard, the expectation, and then reverse engineering so that the individual sees how they fit in, how they stay in, and how they grow in the organization. And that, Mike, is ultimately what we are aiming to do. There are some real costs associated with turnover. We are very much aware that we are better positioned if we can succeed at retaining the talent that we have. We also know that, Mike, this is true with our donors, right? There is a cost as it pertains to acquisition. And if we could focus on retention, not only of our donors, but also of our team, we would be not only running an effective organization, but a more efficient organization. And so, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, Mike. I believe it is critically important in order for an employee to view an employer as being fair and impartial, to provide as much transparency as possible. I would even go as far, Mike, as to say, before you bring someone in, maybe the first round of interviews, even for an internship, even for a fellowship, maybe the first round is send in a cover letter, But if you're going to sit down and have a conversation with someone, give them advance notice of what you'd like to talk with them about. Maybe the reason why they came to the interview is because people process things differently. People synthesize information differently. Maybe they prepared for the interview, but they prepared with a different set of questions in mind. If you want people to meet or exceed your expectations, Look at your responsibility in that. And maybe you say, hey, I want all of these candidates to have the same ability to come in here and to put their best foot forward. I'm going to assume positive intent. And even if they're resourceful enough to share these questions with their neighbor or their spouse or their parent, If they come in here and if they're prepared and if they're giving me answers that I think are the appropriate answers, and if I sense by asking questions that are rooted in demonstrative examples, that it isn't a bad thing that they asked someone to aid and assist them so that they could be their best self. That's actually a good thing because when they're representing my organization, Outside, they will have been resourceful. They would have said to someone, these are my ideas. Can you make them better? And so, Mike, I just think in order for us to center equity, to create organizations that are fair and impartial, we must reshape and it can no longer be business as usual. Right. The last question I have for you as it relates to this 
is we've talked about creating shared principles and we've talked about creating shared responsibility. And so far, we've talked about within our organizations, but we also interact with people outside of organizations. So we have vendors, nonprofits, like, like any other organizations, they spend money, we buy goods and services, we, we trade, we do trade with other companies, sometimes other nonprofits, we pay consultants. Should we be looking at all of our outside relationships where we're spending the money and, and we're mostly value buyers. We're buying something because it's a good value. But we don't often look at the people or the organizations um, that we're buying those things from. Should we look at those outside relationships, which are trade relationships at this point? Should we also look at those through the lens of equity and inclusion? Mike, I'm going to go back to the gift acceptance policy. So the gift acceptance policy is a policy that we adopt that gives us a sense of whether or not we can or cannot say yes to a financial investment. We also have investment policies that tell us, does my organization want to invest in the manufacturing of guns? Does my organization want to invest in alcohol? Does my organization want to invest in economies and countries where women don't have all the rights afforded men? Mm -hmm. We make principled decisions in some areas of the allocation of our dollars, but not in all. Right. And so, Mike, if the definition of equity is to be fair and to be impartial, we should look at all of our financial resources and the manner in which we distribute them. Look at the staff. Are we distributing through compensation of full-time staff, consultants? Are we doing that in an equitable way? Mm -hmm. The vendors, the individuals who own the companies, do all of the individuals who own the companies look like the majority? Is there opportunity for us to invest in a startup, in a new organization, even if we are finding ourselves taking a risk? I think what you will begin to see, Mike, is that the systems within countries have not been kind to entrepreneurs who are people of color, who are Black, who are Indigenous, who represent racial and cultural backgrounds that are different than the majority. It has been very, very hard for those businesses to stay open and for those businesses to flourish. There may be vendors who have been around, who have past performance to speak to, but there's a higher probability, Mike, that there will be entrepreneurs who are looking forward to using their talents and they are looking for opportunities 
and they may not have Mike the capability statements, the past performance, the initial yeah. capital, right? And so if you are looking to provide diversification and if you want to diversify your base, the vendors, your consultants, you want to make sure you're holding people to fair standards. If I started my business yesterday, it's really unfair of you to think that I will be able to show you examples from the past 10 years. Now, what may be a fair question would be, if you had this budget to work with, what would you produce and how would you go about producing it, right? Because that's testing whether or not I have the mindset and the skill set for the work versus penalizing me for what has been a systemic barrier to my inability to either win work or to keep work. Right. Tyus Lee, I, I've been taking so many notes during our conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm going to attempt to recap our conversation a little bit. Then I have one more question for you. But uh, we are going to start by basically creating shared principles. And we do that by creating a, a short diversity statement between 20 and 70 words. We're going to make it really easy to understand. We're going to write it at, at eighth grade reading level or lower. And then we are going to use positive words like freedom and growth and commitment. And we're going to institutionalize it by practicing shared responsibility. This is where we live out those statements. And we're going to make commitments to our staff to actually help them put their best foot forward and use their skills and talents and motivation and commitment to grow themselves and grow organization. And lastly, we're going to engage in shared risk, which is where we're going to take a bet on, on vendors and consultants who may not be as established, but to have the right mindset and where we can create a meaningful partnership where they add value to our organization and we add value to their business. Tysley, before I let you go, I, I asked this question of every guest on the show, and that is, do you have an encouragement, uh, a, a positive word of affirmation for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers and marketers who get up every morning to do the hard work of building good in our communities? Mike, before I share the last word, I want to thank you for what has been an extremely enjoyable conversation I also want to publicly thank you for being uh, a champion and for using your personal privilege uh, to propel the world in a positive way. So thank you, Mike. We started today's chat talking about a wonderful and extraordinary uh, Black woman, Cicely Tyson, and I'm going to end our chat uh, with words of wisdom from another phenomenal uh, Black woman, Dr. Maya Angelou, who Mike, I had a very close relationship with. She was my instructor in college at Wake Forest University. And Dr. Angelou would say, nothing will work unless you do. And so, my encouragement 
to our fellow fundraisers, to our fellow marketers, to our fellow agents of social good. If we want things to work, and if we want things to work in a more equitable way, we must work. And we must work in a more equitable way. Nothing will work unless you do. I wish everyone all the best as they set out doing great work. Thanks so much, Mike, for the opportunity. And I can't wait to hear more about the wonderful ways people are going to go about actualizing equitable work within the social sector. Well, Tysley, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work you do. I'm so grateful you took the time to come on the show. On behalf of our listeners, I, I know that this was a very valuable conversation, but also on behalf of myself, my, my wife and I are, are raising a, a girl of color and we look to leaders like you, to women of color, to help us become better champions for her and eventually for her to, to look up to you. So thank you for taking the time. If people want to find you, where is the best place to connect with you? So they can find me, Mike, as you referenced on Twitter at T-Y-C-E-L-Y. They can also find me on LinkedIn at Tysley. Last name Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. Thanks again, Tyson. Well, that's all for today. I hope you are as encouraged by Tysley as I am. You know, this topic really deserves more than just 40 or, or, or 45 minute conversation, but I hope that you've picked up a few actionable insights that will motivate you to take a closer look at your existing structure and start identifying some areas where you can actually make some changes. And, you know, even if you're not in a, in a senior leadership position, but you manage a budget or, or a department, there are ways you can start today. From how you spend your professional development dollars, to who you hire or promote, to who your suppliers and vendors are. I want to thank you for listening to the Build Good podcast brought to you by Build Good and 5MinuteFundraisingFix.com. If you've enjoyed the show, would you do me a favor and rate the podcast and Apple Podcasts? I would be so grateful for that little bit of help, but it also benefits listeners like you because it means we get to invite and learn from experts like Tysley on this show. As always, before I log off, please remember... You were made for these times. You've got this. You're resilient and creative. And the world desperately needs go-getters and go-givers like you right now. So hang in there. I'm your host, Mike Turkson, cheering you on as you build good in the world. <laughs>